0: If you've been with us, this might be helpful because you've slept since the last time we were together. And if you haven't, this will be helpful because it will catch you up to speed. The last few weeks, we've talked a bit about Christmas. A few weeks ago, we talked from Colossians 2 where the Apostle Paul shares that all of the Jewish feasts and festivals that they had celebrated were what he called shadows. They, were, they weren't they were of substance. The substance was Christ. But they were intended to draw God's people to Him. And so at periodical times throughout the year, there were seven feasts that God had commanded them to celebrate. And the intention was is that it would point them to this coming king, this savior who would come and ultimately and finally deal with the issue of sin that separated them from God. And who would bring in a kingdom of peace and righteousness where God's people would rest secure in his provision. And so they celebrated much like we do at Christmas time. And they're reminded of God's blessing and provision. And the intention of all of these feasts, all of these parties, was to point to a greater feast that would occur when Christ would return. And so we celebrate and we're going to have some feasts these next few days. And they're intended to remind us. And that's why Christmas can be a little bittersweet. That's why it has this great promise and all of this hope. But in the end, if, if not pointed to the substance of Christ, it, it kind of becomes just a mess you have to clean up with. But there's a bigger picture. There's a promise. And, and these feasts, these parties, what we do tonight with our families, what we do in the morning with our families, they're a shadow. They're intended to point us to this Jesus. Then we talked about this promised kingdom that would come. And all of these promises that God had laid out. And we kind of went through the whole story of the Bible, showing you each turn of events, how it pointed to this coming Redeemer. And I want to walk through that really quickly with you, because it's quite amazing. More than 4,100 years before the birth of Christ, God had, had laid out a promise when He pronounced judgment on the very first sin. He pronounces judgment on the serpent who had tempted Adam and Eve, our first parents, and and had enticed them into sin. And the judgment is this, is that one day the offspring, particularly of the woman, would come and would crush him. And so the hope is laid out and the rest of the story unfolds as this coming offspring of woman who, who will arise at one point in history and crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of him who holds the power of death. More than 42 generations before the coming of Christ, there's a promise given to Abraham that one of his descendants, one of his offspring, would be a blessing to the entire world. And so the promise got a little narrower. Over 2,000 years before his birth... Jacob prophesies over his sons in what had to be the most awkward family moment. He gathers all the sons around him and he looks at the first couple and he goes, you know, you're you're a little shady, this one's unstable and you're not going to run the family even though you're firstborn and I know that's normal, sorry. And this is in the presence of all of them. And then he looks at the next one and he says, you're a bit violent and I'm a bit scared of what the family would look like if you were in charge. And he, he goes down line and he gets to Judah and he says, look, I know you're not the oldest but you will reign, you're... Descendants, your family will reign over the entire family. And so the promise is given that this king will come from the line of Judah. Over 1500 years before the birth of Christ, a pagan prophet who's paid to prophesy against Israel proclaims that a star will announce the birth of this king who will crush all opposing kingdoms. A thousand years before his birth, the promise is given to David that one of his descendants will come. Seven hundred years before his birth, the prophet Isaiah proclaims that a virgin will be with child and give birth. And this child will be the king that will rule over all things and that his kingdom will have no end. Daniel More than 600 years before his birth proclaims the coming of a kingdom that will crush all other kingdoms and that it will come in the fourth of a succession of Gentile kingdoms that had reigned over Israel, which is what happens when Jesus is born. Another prophet, Micah, over 650 years before Jesus tells us that in Bethlehem will be the birthplace of this child. And 700 years before his birth, Isaiah says he'll be raised in Galilee. All of these prophecies, and in Matthew chapter two alone, we find the birth of Jesus fulfilling eight different prophetic statements to a T. In weird and awkward ways. That's why I love the way the King James begins the story of Christmas in Luke two, when it says, And so it came to pass. What a what a charged phrase. So it came to pass that for over four thousand years we had been waiting, the people of God had been longing for his coming. And so it came to pass that Caesar decreed a census would be taken. And that in the back corners, in the forest reaching section of the empire, an impoverished, unknown couple in an unknown city would begin a dangerous journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And that the Son of God would be born there, just as the prophecy had been foretold. That Herod in his fear would would attempt to destroy the baby and they would run to Egypt. And that he would come back from Egypt and he would be raised in Galilee in the town of Nazareth just as the prophets had told. It came to pass just as God had said it would in ways that no one would have guessed. Which is why no one really saw it coming. That's why we tell the story of a, a handful of, of guys that were shepherds, that were riff who showed up to see the baby being born. That God's amazing choir of angels didn't go to a concert hall or to a castle, but to a small hill outside of a small city, to a small group of nobodies, and proclaim the birth of the greatest king the world has ever seen. And that then some wise men, some guys who were very sketchy in terms of where they're from and, and how they knew, they just show up. And they worship Him as King, even though the the priests and the the holy men of Israel didn't see it coming. These men who, who hadn't seen all of what God had promised, they were there following a star, just as the Lord had proclaimed. And so God announced the birth of His Son in strange ways, but some received Him. And many for years have debated when Jesus was born. Is it the 25th of December? Is that an accurate date? Is that a guess? Really, none of us know. Some scholars will tell you it couldn't have been. Some will say it might have been. What we do know is for whatever reason, the church settled on this day because we thought, you know, the birth of God's Son is worth celebrating. Whenever it happened, let's choose a time and let's have a party. And so we do that. What is important is that the Bible does tell us something about when He was born. Not the day, but the significance. In Galatians chapter 4, Verse four, God gives us the timing of the birth of His Son. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a, wor- a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He doesn't tell us what date, doesn't give us the weather report, didn't get a baby book for Mary and get the headlines of the day to put that in there to commemorate it. But what he does tell us is it happened in the fullness of time. That, that God for years had made this promise and that his people had hoped and expected and longed for it to come. And in exactly the right moment, by God's gracious and sovereign will, this plan that he laid out before the foundations of the world in the fullness of time at just the right moment, God sent His Son, what amazes me and what's far more significant than the day we celebrate it is this, the reason that He came. That in the fullness of time He sent His Son to be born of a virgin, yes, but for what reason that He might redeem those who were under the law and receive us as adopted sons. God had laid out this standard of of moral perfection that none of us could live up to, describing His nature and His character as holy and, and far above and beyond us. And all of us who would live under the law would fall constantly. And they had this system in place that if you sinned, there was a prescribed sacrifice you could make. And I'm so thankful that I don't live in there. Because what I would probably do is go to the temple, make a sacrifice, walk out, see someone I didn't like, sin in some way. And have to go get another goat, walk back in and do this. And I would never get more than like two blocks from the temple. But he says, for people living under this law, that were incapable of living up to God's standard of perfection... The point was that they would cry out to Him and they would look to Him and recognize that He was their hope. He was their salvation, not their own efforts. That they couldn't be good enough to to incite and entice His love, but that He had chosen to love them. That He had set His affection upon them and He proves it. Because in the fullness of time, to those of us who, who languish under the law of sin and death, He sent His Son to redeem us. Not just to teach us how to live, although He did that. Not just to show us what it is to love, although He did that. But to redeem us. Not simply our good example and our great teacher dropping really cool statements about philosophy. Our Redeemer. The one who by His blood would pull us out of sin. Who would save us. And so He came to redeem those of us who could not live up to the standard of the law, which is all of us. And then He came, so that we could be adopted as sons. The Bible's clear that for those of us who are outside of Christ, that haven't trusted in Him, that we are not sons in in this sense that's being referred to here, that we are in fact God's enemy. Not because He has set Himself opposed to us, but because we have rebelled against Him in our sin. But that because our sin is so significant, it, it... Creates this barrier that makes it un- us unable to even move close to Him. And He says, He came. So that that barrier would be broken down and you might be adopted as sons and brought into the family. And because of that, be heirs of God. That would receive an inheritance from Him. And so in the fullness of time, His Son came. And Luke tells us, it came to pass. It happened just as He said it would. And so we're to celebrate it. We celebrate it. Not just because a baby came, although there's always celebration when children are born, but we don't generally celebrate the birth of any child for 2,000 years. My children are cute. I don't think that's going to happen. This child had to be special. He had to do something of significance. Significance. And there's a reason that billions of people throughout history for over 2,000 years have celebrated the birth of this child. It's because He accomplished what He was sent to do. So He was sent to redeem and He completed that by dying on the cross for us and rising again. And He was sent so that we could be adopted as sons and He completed that when He sent the Holy Spirit who now comes into us and draws us into the family of God when we believe. We celebrate His birth because He accomplished His mission. And so we celebrate what this baby did, not just that he came. And because everything came to pass just as it had been promised, we can trust God for other promises that He has made. He had promised this coming King, but that wasn't the only promise God had ever made. He's made other promises to those who will believe. That for those who put their faith in this King that was born that first Christmas That He died for their sins and rose again. That He is their righteousness. And because of His perfection, they are forgiven of all sin. Because the judgment was poured on Him. That we are granted the status of sons of God and daughters of God. And that is a gift that is unfading, unchanging, reserved for us in heaven. The gift is good and it is... Carried and, and not only has He done that, He's sent His Holy Spirit to dwell within those who believe. The Bible says as a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance. It's His work. And He's made promises and He's proven Himself trustworthy. Because every promise He's made, He's delivered on or you can see how it's coming. And so we celebrate it. This gets to the difference of, uh, of two things that are very possibly the ways that, that our Christmas will be remembered. And if you don't get anything else tonight, I want you to get this, is that Christmas has two competing emotions that it generates within us. One is hope. And the other is nostalgia. Nostalgia is not all bad. But it, it ends if it's just this misty-eyed, Feeling of happiness that that happened because something was pretty and it reminds us of mom and dad and what it was like growing up and and, and the fruitcake that for some reason we can't imagine has been handed on throughout the family. We eat it not because we like it, but because grandma said so and because her grandma said so. We carry out these family traditions and it feels good even if the fruitcake tastes bad. That's not bad. It's just awfully small. What God has done for us in Jesus that we celebrate this Christmas is hope. That this Christ child brings with Him this kingdom of righteousness and peace. This day when there is no more weeping or mourning. This moment when there is no more death or sickness. When those who have died, who have trusted in Christ, are resurrected and join us. And that we will be with them forever in heaven. That is the hope. And so my prayer for you, my admonition to you is don't get wrapped up in the remembrance so much that it drowns out the hope of what will come. That there are more promises that we're yet to receive. And as you remember, remember that He has always been faithful to His promise. And let that remembrance not end in nostalgia, but let it drive you to faith for today and hope for tomorrow that this King will come. That His kingdom is worth it. And that faithfulness to Him will ultimately be a sacrifice and a price worth paying. That this King, this Jesus, has been given all authority and honor and that at His name every knee will bow and tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the praise of God the Father. This is the King we celebrate tonight. Let us pray. Father God, we thank You so much for Your Son. And I pray that we would constantly at this time just be overwhelmed with Your goodness to us. Not simply in remembrance that leads to nostalgia, but in remembrance that spurs on faith and hope that we might press on, trusting in this Jesus who died for us and rose again, who will come again and establish His kingdom, longing for that day, and that that longing would order our steps in such a way that we, as Your instruments, would hasten its coming. We pray that You would bless our family gatherings these next couple days. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.